Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello again. The day I'm writing this, it has cooled off, meaning that it's back in the 80s as opposed to nearly 100, which is good because I really needed to mow the lawn and I really didn't want to do it in the swelter that we had for the past week. Anyway, I hope that you are all still safe and well and fighting the good fight. Today we will cover the three um, Homeric hymns dedicated to Aphrodite, numbers 5, 6, and 10. Hymn 5 is the last of the long hymns, so-called because they're, well, significantly longer than most of what is included in the collection. With the past few episodes on the Homeric hymns, I've done the long hymn last, but since we have two shorter hymns for Aphrodite, um, I'll just do these three in numeric order. Um, and again, I'm using the Susan Shelmerdine translation. A bit of content warning for this episode. It is about Aphrodite, and I can't talk about her without acknowledging the existence of sex. Um, And you can decide your comfort level with sharing this episode with your kids. Hymn 5 is the last of the long hymns, but it is also the oldest of them, dating to around 675 BCE. It tells a story that we've seen reference to in some of the Iliad episodes. In the Iliad, we've met a Trojan by the name of Aeneas, and he's received some special treatment because his mom is Aphrodite. Hymn 5 tells the story of how Aphrodite met Anchises and ultimately uh, gives birth to Aeneas. The hymn begins with the traditional invocation of the muse for inspiration for the song of Aphrodite. We tend to call her the goddess of love, but If you remember the last Power of Myth episode, how I talked about the problem of English having only one word for love, yeah, we're not talking about romantic love here. She doesn't so much lead people to fall in love with one another as she leads them to fall into lust with one another. Uh, She's more the goddess of sex than of love. And she influences all of the mortals, man and beast. But more than that, she influences the gods. Well, except for three of them. First, Athena. We are reminded that Athena is the daughter of Zeus and that she much prefers war to love. And she's clever. Uh, She taught mankind how to make carriages and chariots. But more than that, she's taught women as well. The poet doesn't go into detail, but Athena is credited for the skills each woman possesses. So women's wisdom comes from Athena. The second goddess Aphrodite can't reach is Artemis. She prefers to hunt and sing and shout and spend her time in the woods and where righteous men dwell, um, which is an interesting take on, on Artemis. The third is Hestia. She is the first begotten and last born of Kronos. Um, you'll remember from Hesiod that Kronos swallowed all of his children and then threw them all up. So the first one in, Hestia, uh, became the last one out. So while both um, Poseidon and Apollo courted her, she, she's uninterested and remains steadfast. And instead, Hestia uh, vowed to remain a virgin in exchange for which Zeus made her the goddess of the hearth. Now, at least where I live in North America, we tend to visualize the hearth as a fireplace. 
But in the architecture of ancient Greece, the hearth was central to the house. It was a focal point. So Hestia becomes the most important goddess in each household, which is appropriate since she really is the oldest of the Olympian gods. You're probably more familiar with her worship in ancient Rome, where she was called Vesta, and her priestesses were the famous Vestal Virgins. So Aphrodite has influence over everyone, mortal and immortal, except for these three goddesses. Everyone else? <laughs> yeah, they can't ex escape her. All of, those, all of those affairs that Zeus has, it's Aphrodite's fault. Obviously, blame the woman. It couldn't be his own fault. In an act of retaliation, Zeus decides to make Aphrodite fall in love with a mortal herself, because then all of the gods can laugh at her folly the way they laugh at Zeus, and every other god too. Well, except for those three, of course. Zeus picks Anchises, who is currently hanging out on Mount Ida, playing at being a cowboy, even though he is, in fact, a Trojan prince. And it works. Aphrodite sees Anchises and falls in love with him, or lust. She goes to her temple at Paphos, which is in Cyprus, and there her besties, the Graces, help her get all dolled up. Once she's satisfied with her appearance, she makes a beeline for Ida and the hut outside which Anchises is strolling, chewing on some straw and strumming a guitar. Okay, I made up the straw. And it's really a liar because the guitar hasn't been invented yet. Aphrodite takes the form of a pure, sweet maiden, and she just shines, literally. And Anchises is immediately taken with her. He thanks all of the gods because clearly one of them sent her to him. As an expression of his gratitude, he vows to make an altar where he will make sacrifices year-round. And you may recall that Zeus does like to hang out on Mount Ida while watching the Trojan War, and he is the one who set up Aphrodite and Anchises, so altar, Zeus, responsible for the love, yeah. But back to Anchises. He then prays that he won't be punished for lusting after this woman who must be immortal herself. Um, so An Anchises is not a fool. But Aphrodite, oh, she plays coy. Oh, little old me, a god. Pshaw! My dad is Otreus. You've heard of him. And I had a Trojan nursemaid, so that's how I learned your language. I was dancing with some nymphs when Hermes kidnapped me and brought me here. He told me I'm supposed to marry Anchises, but I do think it would be at best to do the proper thing and let your parents meet me first. <laughs> They're going to love my dowry. And Anchises says, well, if you really aren't a god, then let's just do it now. Go talk to my parents later. Or not. I mean, I'll die a happy man after we have sex. And Aphrodite pretends to blush and takes his hand and they go into his hut and climb into his bed. And afterward, Aphrodite makes Anchises go to sleep. Literally, not figuratively. And puts her clothes back on and makes her look a bit more like the goddess that she is. Then she wakes him up. <laughs> Do I look different? He takes one quick look and then covers his eyes. I knew it, he cries. I knew you were a god, but you lied to me. And Aphrodite responds by telling him not to fear. She's going to go home now. And then she's going to have a baby. And he's going to be named Aeneas because it grieves her that she had sex with a mortal. Um, and that's a Greek pun on what grief, the word for Greek, and then Aeneas's name. Um... The Trojans have a bad track record when it comes to the gods. They are just too pretty of a people. Uh, like Ganymede, 
He was so pretty that Zeus took him up to Olympus and granted him eternal youth so that he could be the cupbearer to the gods, which is a pretty lousy existence, frankly. Oh, and then there's Eos, um, the dawn. She fell in love with Tithonos, and she even got Zeus to grant him immortality so that she could spend eternity with him. But she forgot that Zeus can be pretty literal, so Tithonos got eternal life, but not eternal youth. And now he's really old, and Eos doesn't love him anymore because he's so old and ugly. So Aphrodite has determined that Anchises will remain nor mortal. He's lucky, she tells him. He gets to die, but she's going to have to live forever with the shame of having slept with him. They used to talk about how she paired up all of the other gods with mortals, but now she's no better than them, and she's pregnant to boot. But that child... He'll be raised by nymphs, and those nymphs will bring Anchises to see him. Supervised visits, if you will. And once he's old enough, you know, five, um, Aphrodite will grant full custody to Anchises, but only as long as he keeps his trap shut on who the child's mother is. Zeus will smite him if he tells. And with that, Aphrodite flies back to Olympus, and the poet concludes the song. Um, so we'll take a little break here before looking at hymns 6 and 10. I do want to touch on a couple of things from hymn 5 before we look at the much shorter hymns 6 and 10. Hymn 5 is problematic isn't the right word. Um, maybe emblematic is better. Um, it's emblematic of the issue of consent and choice. Can we really say that Aphrodite has consented to sleeping with Anchises? Um, a lot of interpretations of this focus on the fact that she she is the seducer in the situation, but um, but she wouldn't have chosen to seduce Anchises if Zeus hadn't made her. Um, but one of the things that Aphrodite boasts about is how she's done this same thing to all of the other gods. Well, you know, except for those three. Um, so in this context, was there consent in any of those relationships, if we can use that word? Um, is Zeus consenting when he sleeps with the numerous mortal women he sleeps with? Not even talking about whether or not all of those women have consented. Um, if If... Zeus is doing it because Aphrodite has made him. Has he consented? Is Anchises consenting in this so-called relationship? And I, I don't think I noticed that the first time I read read this poem way back when I was, you know, 19. Um, but it, it does make him five much more relevant to looking at the world and sexual relationships today than it likely was 2,500 years ago when it was written. So, is Aphrodite sympathetic? Not particularly. She really, she is not my favorite goddess because she is so manipulative. Um, but does she deserve this sort of punishment? No, no one deserves to be treated this way. And with that food for thought, let's move on to hymn six. Um, we don't know much about this one, no date or location, but there is a reference to hoping to win a contest um, with it. So it must have been written for some sort of competition. It's a mere 21 lines, so significantly shorter than hymn five. And it describes what may be a familiar image 
of her. Um, it's the birth of Aphrodite, or perhaps you might want to use the Latin name for her, Venus. Um, I personally read this and I think of Botticelli, so um, I found found a copy of it um, that I can post, so that you'll see that on the blog if you can't remember exactly what the, the what Botticelli's birth of Venus looks like. Aphrodite uh, is carried on sea foam until she reaches Cyprus, and there she is greeted by the Horai, Thalo, Carpo, and Auxo, or growth, flowering, and ripeness, the seasons. Uh, and since we know that Aphrodite is a fertility goddess, this makes sense. Fertility doesn't just mean human reproduction. It's about the harvest of the crops as well. And we can see that the seasons personified in the Horai are agricultural seasons, growth, flowering, ripeness. The back to the poem. Aphrodite is greeted by the Horai who dress her in divine clothing, crown her with gold, adorn her with jewelry, earrings, and necklaces. It's the same sort of jewelry the Horai themselves wear because on Wednesdays we wear pink. The Horai then lead her to Olympus, and the gods are taken with her. Do you know the Rosadagio from The Ballet Sleeping Beauty? Um, I, I've shared a clip of it on the blog. Um, I'm a ballet dancer, so it's an obvious reference to me, but I can understand if it's not for you. Anyway, that's basically what happens. Uh, what, what happens in the Rosadagio is basically what happens with Aphrodite. All of the gods propose to her. And then the poet says uh, that they hope they win and, and they say farewell. <laughs> Abrupt? Yes. Yes, it is. That's where it ends. It does not say what happened with the proposal. It just says all of the gods ask her to marry them. And, um, and, and I hope I win uh, the competition with this poem. Farewell. I'll sing to you again another time. Um, so... I think that we'll take one more break um, before looking at Hymn 10 and, and wrapping up this episode because there isn't that much more to say about, <laughs> about Hymn 6. Hymn 10 is the shortest of the three hymns to Aphrodite. It clocks in at a mere six lines. The first three are the greeting, and the last three are the farewell. In some ways, it is similar to the other short hymns we've seen that appear to be almost templates as opposed to hymns intended to stand on their own. The poet announces their subject and speaks of her beauty and how she smiles on all. And then the poet says farewell to her and asks that the goddess will grace them again with another song in the future. We see two different images of Aphrodite in these three poems, and I wonder if that is in part because the Aphrodite we see in hymns 6 and 10 um, is younger than the Aphrodite we see in hymn 5. She's an old hand on Olympus by the time Zeus is so sick of her matchmaking that he sets her up with Anchises. But what we see in hymn 6 is her birth, her introduction to the rest of the gods. She hasn't started causing problems yet. Well, other than all of the gods vying for her hand in marriage. But we don't get that story. The story of how Zeus arranges for her to be married to Hephaestus. Hymn 6 stops before telling that part. It leaves us with her as still an innocent, if you will. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially on consent in Hymn 5, but also about the whole fertility-agriculture connection. And I'll post a few fun things uh, that these hymns made me think of on the blog, too. And the link, as always, is in the show notes. On Monday, we will start reading the most disturbing of the Greek tragedians. Euripides was a cheery guy, and we'll start his plays with Alcestis. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.